<clears throat> and welcome to another class on the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, of Christ the Mediator. And as we think of this uh, chapter 8, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you. We thank you for who you are and who you have revealed yourself to be. We thank you for your righteousness, your holiness, your goodness, your steadfast love. We thank you for your justice, your judgments. We pray this morning, even as we consider and think more about you, Lord Jesus, about who you, uh, how you took upon yourself uh, human nature, how you are one person, we thank you for what you did, how you had to become a man in order to deliver us from sin and misery. And so as you, Lord, uh, condescended yourself to us to deliver us, we pray that we would uh, live for you. And so as we think about uh, these things this morning, and as we contemplate them and think deeply about them, it is that we would know you more clearly, that we would... Uh, live our lives in thankfulness and gratitude toward you, that you would bring us uh, to realize who we truly are outside of you and grow in our appreciation for what you have done. We pray that all these things would be done for you and for your kingdom, for you are the heir of all things. Uh, you rule over all things by your wisdom and your power. And so we pray it would be for these ends that we do these things. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, thanks. Um, so as we begin, uh, and kind of in rehashing, we went over a tiny section of, uh, of Christ the Mediator last week. Uh, I would also encourage you, uh, because some of the things that we'll be talking about this morning are somewhat head-heavy, and one of the ways in which you can make it easier on yourself is to uh, memorize the Shorter Catechism. And in particular, even looking and meditating on questions 21 through 28, which deal with Christ and his uh, mediator, Christ being mediator, uh, it will be extremely beneficial to you. Uh, last week we read in, in section one here, we see it pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be mediator between God and man, the prophet priest and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, to whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. And so this week what we'll be looking at uh, first is that uh, the offices that Christ holds he is the prophet, the priest, and the king. 
And so as you're reading and even thinking about the Old Testament, when you're going through it, you know, how was Israel set up, right? You had kings and kingship, you had prophets, right? And you had a priesthood. And Jesus Christ fulfills all of these roles. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so we see here uh, the passage that's used to show that Jesus Christ is prophet. You have Acts 3.22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And as you read the, the uh, New Testament as well, you see that this, what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, is being quoted here in the, in the book of Acts. Uh, the people of Israel were looking for this. They were waiting for a prophet. And so they would say to Jesus at times, are you the, right, it's a definite article, the prophet. They're waiting for a prophet like Moses to come. And in the shorter catechism, we see how does Christ execute this office of prophet? Uh, He executes the office of a prophet in his revealing to the church in all ages by his spirit and word in diverse ways and administration, the whole will of God, all things concerning their edification and salvation. That's actually the larger catechism. And so Jesus Christ is a prophet. He is the one who reveals the truth. I should mention as well, I actually said it yesterday in the, in the book study, one thing I read that was helpful this week from Gerhardus Voss is when you think of the offices of Christ, right? he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. If we think of faith, and what is faith, uh, you can remember it by the acronym CAT, but you have to spell cat incorrectly. It's knowledge, assent, and trust. And those three things in faith correspond to the offices of Christ. So if you think of knowledge, right, we'd be thinking of Christ's prophetic office, right? Christ reveals to us by his words, the prophetic word. All of these things are under the head, the mediatorial reign of Jesus Christ. Assent, right? One of the great pictures Uh, In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Turn, kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. And so this idea of of turning and running away, and you can picture the person turning the other way and bowing the knee. It's bowing the knee to the king, right? So he's a prophet, he's a king, so that's that ascent. And then the trust, placing your life into the hands of Jesus, is his priestly role, right? Right? And so Jesus Christ as priest has offered himself up as a sacrifice, and we assent to that. It is by his death, by his blood, that we are healed. And so if that helps you, uh, I received it freely, I give it to you freely. So we have prophet, priest, uh, Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son today, I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, One of the things also to keep in mind while we distinguish between the offices, prophet, priest, and king, uh, they also flow within one another. And you can see they're not ironclad distinctions. And so Christ's prophetic office does inform priestly office and so on and so forth. Uh, But these are distinctions that are helpful in understanding, again, who is Jesus? Uh, And also we see, this is the larger catechism as well, how does Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest 
and is once offering himself a sacrifice without spot to God to be a reconciliation for the sins of the people and in making continual intercession for them. And then finally, in dealing with the offices, Jesus Christ is king. Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In Luke 1.33, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Jesus Christ reigns as king. He is the ruler of all. And that's a great comfort to us as well when you think about the world around us and whatever it may be, whatever chaos that we're involved in, Jesus Christ is continually reigning. There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing that he cannot do. And one of the things that I'm reminded of in thinking of that, and we can think of our our own sin as well involved in this, is that when we feel that pressure, when we feel that anxiety and that stress, it should drive us to prayer. Right? Not to an an anxiety is, what can I possibly do in and of myself? A prayer is a recognizing that Jesus Christ is the one who reigns over all. And he is the one who controls all things. And we see this as well in the uh, catechism. Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. And so as well, this is a, it's a warning, right? It's a warning to all nations that unless you turn to the king, you will perish in the way. Jesus Christ reigns over all. And if you, you think about what is the subject of a, in a kingdom, if you're a subject in a kingdom, how do you serve and how do you respect the king? How do you think about the king? Right? You would obey the king. Right? You would not be a subject who did whatever you wanted. It would be you know, off with your head. And an earthly, if you would not do that to an earthly king, how about the king of all and the heir of all things? Any comments or questions on that? So we see his, his reign, his, uh, he is the head and savior of the church, Ephesians 5, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so this is one of the reasons why, again, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. When we think of the church and how it's structured, right? when we think of the church and its worship, or whatever it may be, who do we look to? We look to the head, Jesus Christ. Right? He is the king. He's also the prophet. He has revealed to us by his word how we are to act, how we are to live within the church itself, right? And he is our priest. He is the one that mediates between us as we come and enter into worship. And we're going to see by he's the God-man, and it's necessary because in in his mediatorship, if I can speak, um, so that he can bring us to God. And it's not just the church, but Jesus is the heir of all things. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus Christ, by being actively obedient 
completely obedient to God's law, and that passive obedience, Jesus Christ being put to death, he inherits all things. And it shows you, when you think just for a moment about the universe itself and the glory of God, right? The universe has a glory. But if the universe has a glory, how much more glory does God have? And then you think about the glory of the universe itself that God has made, and he is much more glorious. And man entered into that universe and perverted it. And how much God loves what he has made to come into the world in order to redeem it. And you also think, when you look at the glory of the universe, how insignificant, in a real sense, that we are. Right? We're puny. You walk through graveyards, right? You, walk, you look at the world and how many billions of people there are out there. We're very insignificant. But in God's eyes, significant enough that he would come into the world to die for us. And we were a people who were given to him before the foundation of the world. And so it teaches us uh, who God is. And he is the heir of all these things. Uh, and he is also the judge of the world. And, uh, Acts 17.31 because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is as well something that is worthy of reflection upon because it, most people have an idea in their head that uh, the Father is kind of mean and Jesus is kind of nice. And Jesus, would, he's just this really nice and gracious person, Right? But Jesus Christ, and I, actually when I preached it, when you look at the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is the, the mediator, right? And he's the mediator of life and judgment. And that's really the theme of the Gospel of John, life and judgment. Jesus Christ is judge. He is coming to judge all of those who do not turn to him. And so it, that, that image of, like, if, if you have it, uh, mean God of the Old Testament Nice Jesus of the New Testament. Nothing can be further from the truth. Jesus Christ uh, is the judge. And he will be the one who judges all of those who refer, uh, refuse to turn to him in repentance and faith. Uh, Unto whom he did give from all eternity a people to be his seed. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Psalm twenty two thirty: prosperity shall serve him, uh, posterity, excuse me, shall serve him, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. In Isaiah 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so there were a pe Jesus Christ came to redeem, and what this is saying, a particular people from all eternity. Right? There's a definite group that Jesus Christ came to save. And he will not return again until everyone who was given to him is saved. And that's really, when you think of, you know, another doctrine, perseverance of the saints, 
right? That if you are saved, you will never lose your salvation. That perseverance is not rooted in us. It's rooted in Jesus and his work. He was given a people to whom he would redeem. And he says, I will not lose one. And our confidence is in those words. Jesus Christ will never, ever lose one. That's the promise. And that's where our assurance rests, objectively. And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Uh, the end time there is, is important because it happened in history that you're saved. There are some people who have strange views that uh, you were somehow, since you were given uh, in eternity, that one day you'd be born, that you were really always saved, right? And you just had to come to, in history, a time of realization. But that's false. In history, you were under God's wrath and curse, and in time, you were saved. You were delivered. God's destruction hung over your head at a time. And in time, you were redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and uh, will be glorified. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So thinking about, like, what is redemption? Uh, The Catechism says that redemption is certainly applied and effectually communicated to all those of whom Christ has purchased it, who are in time, by the Holy Ghost, enabled to believe in Christ according to the gospel. And so the idea of redeem has the idea within it of being purchased. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. So you were redeemed. You were bought with a price. Uh, There's kind of a false idea in in theology that you were bought from the devil in history, in the history of theology. Uh, You were bought by the blood of Christ, and you were saved from what? Who was God saving you from? His wrath. Jesus came to save you from himself. Because without him, you would undergo the judgment. And that judgment would remain upon you but you were redeemed. Uh, you were called, I think I'm uh, effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to the elect and from nothing in them moving him thereunto, he does in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. Savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills so as they although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. And so when God calls you, it's not just this outward call, you know, that I may make and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. This is, it's an effectual call. When when God calls you by his word and spirit, you answer. He awakens you. He quickens your soul that you respond to him and to the gospel. It's also why it's, it's so important that the church focus on the ministry of the word. Right? How does the spirit work? The word. It's why it's so important to have these things in 
younger people and older people, have these things in our minds. Be meditating upon them, memorizing them. Right? This should be our love and delight. How does God work? Through his word and his spirit. But if we're not, say, in the word, or if a church is involved in whatever else it is, um, how are people going to be called? How are people going to believe? And the other comfort that this is, is that it's not the preacher's or the teacher's job to save you. It's the preacher's job to put the word out, to be very, as clear as you can, sometimes I know I'm not, um, to be as clear as you can in declaring God's word so that people would hear, God's sheep would hear and believe. And so clarity, you know, preaching, teaching, but the centrality of the, of the work of the church is the ministry of the word. And that's how we should think about uh, the church. Any comments or questions? Uh, we move then to uh, justified. What does it mean to be uh, justified? Well, justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts uh, their person righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Um, so, uh, what is justification? Right? It's God putting to your account the work of Christ, right? It's forgiving you of your sin and putting Christ's righteousness to your account. It is imputed. Uh, I have the... So it's just as if justified means just as if you haven't sinned at all because it's only a foot. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's more than that. It's Christ's righteousness being applied to you in an accounting sense. It's not that there's any transformation that goes on within you. That's regeneration. Um, but justification is accounting. It's put to your account. So Christ took your sin and he handed you his righteousness. And that's uh, the passage for that really is, is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? This is one of the most debated topics really in, in certain circles today about justification. But recognizing this, right, you did nothing. And if you are not righteous, you cannot enter into glory. Only those who are righteous. But where will you attain that righteousness? It's not found in you. It can only be found in Jesus. And how can you enter in if you're impure? Right? Nothing impure will be in God's sight. Heaven will be a place where there is no sin, there's no impurity. But we're not impure, but Jesus is. And so being found in him, right, with a righteousness not of our own, but his righteousness. And this is why, again, when we're thinking about our faith, we owe everything to him. Our entire lives, our thoughts, right, need to be Christ-centered. Everything we do, from the time we wake up, to the time we wake up again. See, I almost said go to bed, but no, not the interim, right? Every single second, we owe to him. If one moment, right, he takes his hand away, we're all gone. He holds all things together as king by, by his power. All things were made through him, right? We owe him everything. There's nothing we do not owe him.
Were you going to say something, John? I was just going to say that, you know, when we think of accounts, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. God put his righteousness to our account. Our account's not at zero, and it's not positive. It's saying there that we have nothing. There's nothing that we've contributed to this account. It's not anything that we've done. Right. It's only Christ's righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without the righteousness of Christ, we'd be, yeah, negative. With Christ's righteousness, though, God looks at us as righteous. Like Jesus. And that's, you know, we need to remember that as well. That's the, when we say God, we're Trinitarian, right? It's Father, Son, and Spirit. That's how God looks at us. Why? Because of the work of Jesus. And what you should be thinking is, how is this possible, right? And that's when we get into section two. Who is Jesus? How is it that his work is so powerful? Um, and remembering, too, justification uh, in the Shorter Catechism as well uh, is an act, right? It's a once. Sanctification, which we now go into, is a work. So act, singular, work, it's through our lives. Uh, sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So, God has given us his spirit, again, that we would continually be putting sin off uh, by his grace and growing in grace. Any comments or questions on those? Uh, And then glorification, which is why I chose this catechism question, uh, number 37. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And so glorification is something that happens in the future. um, And we are still united to Christ. It's not that our, our souls end up uh, somehow in a sleep or somehow away. No, we are still united. We continue with a soul until we are ultimately reunited with our body. And that's the end, right? It's good that we have a soul and a body, and they will be reunited uh, one day. Any comments or questions? That was section one. Then we move, we're going to move into section two, which... Uh, my favorite section in this chapter. So, uh, these are things to think about. I, I thought about where to put this exactly, but sometimes it's good to have these things in your mind. I mean, section two is, is the confession is all very technical in the way in which it's written. Uh, section two is, is as well, because throughout church history, uh, there are many heresies concerning uh, the person of Christ and who he is. And so, the confession in section two, and it's it's a section I'd actually recommend even memorizing it. If people want to know who Jesus is, it's a wonderful section they have memorized in the Catechism, uh, the Confession, where you can just easily explain to somebody who Jesus is. And what you're doing here through in section two is skirting around uh, many errors, many errors that we can have in our own minds uh, or we can hear from other people. And so what are the heresies or what uh, categories would they fall under when we're thinking about section two. One would be that Jesus is not truly God. 
right? He's just simply a man. Uh, these were the Ebionites. Uh, modern liberalism, right? Jesus Christ is not divine. He's simply a man. Uh, also, Jehovah Witnesses, although you can place them here or under partially God. Uh, not man. Uh, that would be the Gnostics, uh, Docetism, Modalism, and also Christian science. Uh, any type of Platonic philosophy that crept into Christianity, there's a view that uh, the physical material world is evil. Right? And since the physical material world is evil, Jesus could not truly be a man. He was just simply divine. Then you have people who say he's partially God. Or like Arians. He's like this higher created being. Uh, the first of the angels or whatever it may be. Uh, you also have people that uh, there's no union. Jesus is not one person. People would say Jesus is two people. That's really the Nestorian heresy, right? Jesus is one person. There are not four persons in the Godhead. Uh, there are three persons in the Godhead. So Jesus is one person. Very important to remember. Uh, you also have people that combine the natures of Christ. So Jesus Christ is truly divine, and he's truly man. And some people and this is the one I hear the most from a lot of Christians, uh, they mix the two. They intertwine. This is also, uh, Lutheranism does this. So this is why you, you wonder to yourself, how can Luther believe in what's called consubstantiation, which is their view of the Lord's Supper? They believe Jesus Christ's body is above, below, and around the molecules of the bread, physically. right? It's because they believed in the mixing of natures. right? God is omnipresent. If God is omnipresent and Jesus Christ is truly God, then his body is omnipresent. What do you have there? It's a confusion of uh, the natures, the divine and the human nature. So that even from the point of, they wouldn't have used, Luther wouldn't have said conception, but from the womb, you would have said Jesus' body is omnipresent. So that's for later too. So after we read this, uh, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with God the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conver conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So again, when we're saying, who is Jesus, right? This is an excellent explanation of who Jesus Christ is, and one that we should uh, remember, and we'll see particular things to uh, remember as well. Uh, so remembering that Jesus Christ is truly God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. He's very and eternal God, right? He's of one substance with God the Father. He is equal. And so you can, one false thing that you can think is that somehow Jesus Christ is subordinate to the Father, right? Some form of what you call tritheism, or there are three gods, right? Jesus Christ is not subordinate. He's equal with God the Father, He's of the same substance. He's truly God. 
Right? We always have to keep that in mind. Jesus Christ is truly God. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And what? The Word was God. Jesus Christ is truly God. First uh, John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God is come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true, he is the true God and eternal life. And then Philippians 2.6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Why not a thing to be grasped? Right? He already had it. He was equal with God the Father. And so remembering um, that Jesus is truly God. And that's actually one that most people in Christian circles don't struggle with. It's the humanity of Jesus that most people struggle with. But any comments or questions on that? So I'll be more emphatic when I come to the human uh, nature. Uh, so we see that it's with all the essential properties and common infirmities, yet without sin. Uh, so the confession here goes on to define Jesus' nature further. Jesus had all the essential properties required to be a man. Right? This is what we need to remember. All the essential properties. What are essential properties? Well, it's Aristotelian philosophy, but an essential property is one that if you take anything away, you are no longer that thing. So you can have accidental properties and essential properties. If you think of a person, what's an accidental property? Well, like the color of your skin, your hair, right? your eye color. Those are all, they'd be considered accidents. But what would you have to take away so that you are not a person? So those are the essentials. Jesus Christ had all the essential properties. So whatever property it is that means being a man, Jesus Christ had and has that property. So what are some of those properties? Uh, one would be a body, right? a physical body. And what does Jesus say? Even after his resurrection, he says, what, touch me. Right? A spirit does not have flesh and bones. That's Luke 24, 39. A soul. Matthew 26, 38. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So it's one of the heresies that exists, that Jesus Christ did not have a true soul. But our confession is very clear. A true body and a reasonable soul. A spirit. In John 19.30, uh, when Jesus dies, what does it say? He gave up his spirit. In the seven words from the cross, what are, what, what are one of them, right? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What else is essential to being a man? Death, hunger, he slept, he thirsted, he wept, he grew in wisdom and in stature, Right? It's one of the, and I mentioned souls, one of the um, heresies in, in the early church was, was something called monothelitism. It's a long word, you don't have to remember. It was just that Jesus Christ did not have a soul or a spirit, right? But he, he did. Or, excuse me, that's completely wrong. <laughs> monothelitism is will, excuse me, um, that he only had one will. But the early church said, no. In order to be a man, Jesus had to have a human will. 
And so when he says, like, not my will, but thy will be done, right? Some people said he could only have one will. That's not true. Jesus Christ had a human will because taking that will away, the church said, he's no longer truly man. Everything that is essential to Jesus Christ being a man he had. So he had a true body and a reasonable soul. Is human, right? His mind would have been finite. His soul was created. He had a will that could change. Truly man. And uh, as an example of this, I had heard not that long ago, like probably two months ago, uh, there was an interaction between uh, Ken Ham and uh, William Lane Craig. I don't recommend everything William Lane Craig does, but one of the things that Ken Ham had said to him was a conversation on evolution. Uh, so Ken Ham said to William Lane Craig, if you could go back in time and talk to Jesus and said, Jesus, is evolution true, what would he say? And William Lane Craig responded, I think if I went back and talked to Jesus, he wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> well, that's true. William Lane Craig is right. Because Jesus, he's truly God, but he's truly man. And so he would have had to have it, have it explained to him. It wouldn't have been something that he knew. And so people think, again, that these attributes, like the divine attribute of omniscience, is conferred to his human nature. There are things that Jesus didn't know. And you say, well, that's speculative. Jesus Christ says, even concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, as they're looking down, he says, the angels of heaven nor the Son of Man know what that day is, only the Father. Well, how is that? Jesus is not speaking according to his divine nature there. He's speaking according to his human nature. And according to his human nature, it's not as if at conception, Jesus Christ knew, like, every language that exists in the world and that will ever exist in every human being. No, his mind was finite. He had to learn. He had to grow. That's the one most people struggle with. So any comments or questions? Any other comments or questions? You're amongst friends, it's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll just burn the witch. <laughs> God slumbers not nor sleeps. I know. So how, how does that work? Because he's truly man. It's one of the reasons why, and the confession's very clear, right? It's inseparable, but you distinguish between the divine and human nature. But one person, united, one person. And so what we're doing here, and what, what this is, is how do you make sense of the passages of Scripture? Right? We're going all the way back to, to uh, chapter 1 of the confession. How do we understand the scriptures? Well, God tells us who he is, right? The scriptures tell us who Jesus is. How do you make sense of all these texts? We're trying to make sense of what God has revealed about himself. And so we've seen, I think, in these passages, like you think of John chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus is truly God. Again, it's not the one usually people stumble over. Um, but 
as we've just said, like the Bible says he slumbers not nor sleeps. How is that possible that Jesus slept? How does he hunger? How does he sit there on the cross and say, I thirst? How does he give up his soul? How does he die? God can't die. Yeah? Yeah, I'm fairly content to just, like, believe that. Like, just have to believe that. But I just want to understand it more, and I just don't. Oh, how, how God does that? There are certain things, in, the, way in which, the way in which theologians talk sometimes, especially with certain attributes, is that there's like a veil. Jesus Christ chose in coming to this earth to veil certain attributes. If that helps you to understand it, that's, there, there's some problems with that, but it's, it's helpful. So, if Jesus says, I and the Father are one, mm-hmm. is he talking about Jesus or is he talking about Christ? Yeah, they're both the same. Jesus is the Christ. The t- Christ is a title, so... But this guy just said that Jesus would say, I don't know, but the Father and God knows mm-hmm. all things. So as the Son, Jesus did not know. Uh, another one, and I'm using all the passages that cults love to use, like when the, the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking at your door, they say, they say things like, um, why did Jesus pray? He's very an eternal God. But prayer is, is speaking to someone. When I talk to you, in a sense, I'm praying. I'm just not praying to God. Oh, uh, you're talking to me, but speaking to another person is, is not prayer. Actually, in the Spanish language, prayer is oración. Mm-hmm. And oración is a sentence. Mm-hmm. So it's actually prayer is when we talk to people we're praying. The only thing is it's a direct communication between you and God as you are focusing yeah. specifically on them but, and on your prayer. But uh-huh. it's prayer no matter what. So in languages you can use words that ref- have different reference. That's true. But the way in which prayer is being used here and biblically is you only talking to God. If you were to pray in a biblical sense to other people, it would be idolatrous. I understand that. Yeah. The essence of the, 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 the divide between you speaking and speaking to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to get back to what you were saying, I think a helpful way to think about it is oftentimes like, we have to see in Christ the one person, uh, the nature is being attributed to him. So um, God never sleeps, but Jesus sleeps. And you have to say that in his godness, he didn't sleep, and in his humanity, he did. And that you have to say both at the same time, and that is a mystery. You have to say, yeah, God is not tempted, nor does he tempt, but Jesus was tempted, but he is God. So he had to not be tempted according to his divinity, and he was tempted in his humanity. But, you know, those are things that we keep together, and it's mysterious, but we believe them. That's, that's kind of and, and why this is so necessary, I mean, some people may think it's pie in the sky uh, sort of thinking, is that Jesus Christ is truly mediator. If he is not truly man, he cannot be mediator. A man had to come and redeem us. A, God, a divine man, that's true as well, but fully man, truly man. If there's anything, and that's why these heresies are so dangerous, when you start to take these things away or input them, you say th- people say things like all the time, well, uh, it was easy for Jesus not to sin. He's God. It's such an incorrect way to view Jesus in his ministry, in his act of obedience. 
Jesus Christ wept, right? Droplets of blood were coming from him. The stress and torment that he was under as a true man. And the one difference, right, at the end of this is yet without sin, but truly man, 100%. Anything, when you speak of Jesus, it needs to be 100%. He is truly man. He's truly God as well. Truly man. Yeah, mechanistically, I mean, what do we understand about anything? <clears throat> um, the point being, in being thoroughly biblical is understanding Jesus correctly, also in our own minds not falling into error. Like I said, when you, when you say truly human, that's why people pause, because this is the one thing people struggle with when it comes to Jesus, especially in our circles. Uh, but when somebody knocks at your door and raises these passages of Scripture, right, I smile at them and say, Jesus Christ is truly man. I have no problem with that. But what about these other passages where we see Jesus Christ is divine? He's the divine man. Right? We're, ta we're taking all of Scripture to, under to uh, form our worldview and our, wor our view of, of Christ. We are not seeking, this is not philosophy class. I'm using passages of Scripture. Right? It, there, some concepts may be a bit philosophical, but this is trying to understand all of Scripture and put it together so that our view of the divine man who redeemed us is biblically accurate. And that anything in our minds about him that is not is weeded out. Right? And we can all have that. It happens to everybody at different times. But that's why we think about these things deeply so that we have a correct view of our Savior and Mediator. Committing, I think committing it to memory yeah. and really meditating and thinking about these things uh, is know, beneficial. So thankful for all these people that have gone before me. <laughs> Do you have last comment?
No? Okay, thank you very much.